Hello, everyone. I'm Jen Malott, a partner in Freshfield's antitrust practice in Washington and Brussels, and you are listening to the Essential Antitrust Podcast. Today, we have a very special episode. My partner, Laurent Garzaniti, and I are joined by Olivier Gersant, the Director General of DG Competition. Olivier joins us for a discussion about the competition law milestones in the EU over his 30-year career at the Commission and his views on the challenges and aspiration of antitrust enforcement in the future. Now, in the world of antitrust podcasts, this is about as close as we can get to a celebrity guest. And so Olivier almost needs no introduction, but I'm nevertheless going to ask Laurent to chime in and give us an overview of Olivier's career. Thank you, Jen, and many thanks for being with us, Olivier. You have been a prominent figure in the antitrust world in Brussels and globally, as Jen said, for more than 30 years. In 92, I remembered when you started at the European Commission with the famous uh, merger task force. Uh, then you held senior posts with the European commissioners uh, in competition, Karel Van Meer and Nelly Cruz, and at DG Common in, in various functions, including uh, in cartel enforcement. From 2010, you moved from antitrust away, and you have been the head of the private office of Michel Barnier, Commissioner for Internal Market and Services. You then move on to be Director General for Financial Services before returning to DigiCom in 2020 as Director General. I was very pleased, like many colleagues, to see Olivier becoming Director General. I was convinced then that it would make a difference to have an antitrust specialist uh, at the helm of DGCOM with uh, extensive experience in antitrust. And Olivier has made a difference over the last three years in competition law enforcement in Europe. Uh, under your leadership, DGCOM has found, in my view, a better balance between the need to enforce competition law strictly and the legitimate concern for companies to grow their business. This is all the more commendable uh, in a rapidly changing digital environment, which is also challenging for antitrust regulators. And this positive evolution in Europe is down to Olivier's broad experience beyond competition law and his uh, pragmatic approach. So, Olivier, you have built already a formidable legacy but now, enough about introduction, and let's get your view uh, on the following issue. So, as I said, you have been Director General uh, for DigiCom for over three years now. What do you consider your biggest successes? What do you consider your biggest challenges? What lessons have you learned after three years? Well, thank you, Laurel, and thank you for the praises. Not sure I deserve all of them. You're right. I mean, I've been doing competition. I mean, I've been a competition enforcer almost all my life. Professionally, I started with the French authorities even before uh, joining the commission. And so made this parenthesis of 10 years during which I was doing something else than competition. And the first thing I'd like to say is I think I would have been a worse director general if I had spent all my life in competition. The fact to go elsewhere, see other things, other ways of working, other fields of law was, in my view, a plus in my practice as director general. My biggest achievement, I will borrow the expression from Philippe Lowe, is that uh, I have kept the Rolls Royce running. As a director general of competition, you shouldn't be fooled, shouldn't be fooled yourself with your own importance. I mean, you inherit a treasure, which is a, a really well-functioning engine 
with super motivated people, tried processes. It works really well. I mean, across the board, frankly. And the, the, the various crises we, we went through just showed that people adapted. The processes were fully functional at all time, even with insane peaks of activities. And the whole thing is, is not to crash the world choice. So if you, if you simply can pass it on to the, your successor as fit and operational as you received it, it's a success. That doesn't mean you're just conservative because of course, for the Rolls Royce to remain fit, it needs to change and to adapt because we we're in, in times of incredible changes in the world in general, but for the part we're concerned with in the markets. And it is digitization, but it's not only digitization, it's only digitization. And I'm not only talking the digital world and the platform economy and et cetera, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, but digital is pervasive throughout the economy, it changes the way markets work. So it's, it's extremely important. And there's one of the things that it wrote is that innovation, which has always been important actually of market and in, and in competition analysis becomes even more important now because the innovation waves are shorter and shorter. It comes more and more quickly and it shrinks the time span because, you know, when I started my career in the late eighties, innovation was important, but innovation, what might shape the market in a way you couldn't know yet 10 years from, from the moment you were making the analysis. Well, no, no, we are in two years, one year, sometimes six months. And that means that the, the time span between the time when the innovation makes a difference on the market and the traditional time span of the market analysis in, in competition law have aligned, you know, the traditional two to three years. Well, you're there, you know, much better how it will differ and it structures the market a lot more than it used to be. And that's why you have to adapt. You have to develop theories of harm that are innovation theories of harm. It has always existed. It's more pregnant today and they're more sophisticated. So that's, I think one of the things that I, I was busy doing, making sure that we adapt. That includes a field that is not so interesting for international partners, which is stated control. It's our idiosyncrasy, so we're very interested about it. Not much elsewhere in the world, but suddenly, I mean, the new challenges that were existing, but kind of revealed by the COVID crisis and then by the Russian invasion crisis, the fact that Europe all of a sudden realized much more concretely a number of other reliances, which were probably unsustainable for such a big and important commercial area. All this includes the way policymakers see the way they should orient the economy. And it has an impact also on the way we perform competition policy. And maybe that's the last thing I want to say is that for me, there is a distinction between competition policy, which is can be political, and it's certainly not something that is in isolation. It's one of the policies to reach a goal. The goal is to be prosperous, competitive, decarbonated, digitized. All these are several ways to say the same thing in a way. So a digital to the extent possible should try to help reaching these goals. And competition enforcement, which is quasi-judicial, and for which, of course, your constraints are much, are much stronger. And it's a, it's a constant challenge to reconcile the two. 
And it has to do with this whole discussion we have at the moment. Should you add other goals to competition policy than consumer welfare? So in other words, this political decision can translate into very technical ones. How do you accommodate, I don't know, environmental benefits, for example, innovation, protection of privacy? Should you assign other goals to competition policy than the protection of consumers? Personally, I don't think so, but I don't think you can ignore the regulatory framework that governs the whole society either as a competition enforcer. So all this is, is really the, the, the challenge we have to meet, and it's, it's an extremely big challenge. Thank you, uh, Olivier. That's why I, I think personally, and I know a lot would agree that you, know, you have indeed the right background, having this long-standing experience. And I hadn't forgotten about your French experience, but I was trying to keep it short. But having also had the opportunity to do for 10 years something else, maybe even slightly more political And as you said, you know, it is the right mix given where you are. And maybe, you know, that's also something to be taken into account for the future in terms of the profile of director general for competition going forward. Huh? Uh, and you don't have to respond to that. Let's move on to a new tool, you know, which did not exist, you know, <laughs> when you started and when I started. This is the DMA specific tool to deal with this uh, digital platforms. And I'll let uh, Jen uh, step in because we have a few questions on, on the DMA. Yeah, I mean, indeed, Olivia, I think if we think about DG Compass, that Rolls-Royce you mentioned uh, during your term as Director General, certainly we've seen a few new features added. And uh, one of those is the Digital Markets Act, where we will see most of the compliance provisions becoming effective early next year. Um, and as you know, you're well aware, there are lots of jurisdictions out there who are thinking about their own versions of the DMA and are watching this implementation phase in Europe quite closely for guidance. And we've all watched with great interest the designation decisions that came down a few weeks ago. And following that phase, what are the lessons that you have learned so far in terms of how the DMA operates? Uh, if you, you know, could turn around and go back to the drafting table now, are there things about it that you would change or do you, you see it sort of coming into effect as envisioned? Well, first of all, in a democracy, the legislators write the laws. It's probably a good thing. So what we did is we made a proposal. And even the proposal was not entirely the GCOM's proposal. First of all, we crafted it together with our, our friends in the GConnect. Because it's really, it's a joint venture from the beginning. And the reason why it's a joint venture from the beginning, and I think it's good, is that we, we needed a whole set of competencies. The DMS sits in the middle between the traditional regulatory environment, which is symmetric. I mean, you have rules on, I don't know, pedopanography or anything else which apply to everybody, big, small, alike, and competition enforcement, because The point was that, although, as you know, we were, we've been the, the most active jurisdiction in the world in this field for the last 25 years, we had to see that there was a discrepancy, there is a discrepancy between the time needed to bring to an end a competition case and the time needed in the world of platforms to make irremediable harm to competition. And the DMA is, is a, a product of these two facts. There was a missing link in between traditional symmetric regulation and exposed antitrust. And of course, we could have made it part of competition law, the way the Germans did, for example. The reason why it's not is an idiosyncrasy of our legal system, which is that it had to be labeled as a regulatory 
instrument. And also, to be fair, it has a, a big internal market dimension. So anyway, but that's a distraction. It is a competition law inspired regulatory equity. At inception, the DMA proceeds from a very bold choice. This is basically, we had a choice between having a flexible tool, a bit like the Brits are having, or, or, or now the, the Australians, or having a tool that is narrower in the form of an outright exempted prohibition. Of course, both have advantages and disadvantages. If you go for something very flexible, you can catch basically whatever situation. You don't run the risks that your, your regulation becomes out of date very quickly. But at the same time, you probably will run into the same problems we run with Article 102. So we thought, well, if it is to do this, well, let's keep 102 only and maybe make more use of interim measures or maybe make specific guidelines, try to find quick fix in order to speed up the proceedings. But we kept to the conclusion that that would not do the trick entirely. So we went the other way. And we kind of operationalized into ex-ante prohibition virtually all the things we had found illegal around the last 25 years, confirmed by the court. No finding of efficiencies ever. And, and yet, firms would reiterate the conduct again, again, and time again. Because we were simply too slow and it was still profitable to do it, although they knew it would be. So that basic choice, I would not put into question. First of all, because the jury is still out. I mean, we need to see how it works in order to see whether it is effective. We've tried to cover for, for the inherent downsides of this approach by having, you know, anti-circumvention and kind of future-proofing mechanisms. We can input the DMA with new prohibitions or new obligations very, very quickly on the basis of new experience accumulated under Article 102. So it's really too early to say, yes, it works very well, or no, it should be fixed here and there, or no, it doesn't work at all, because we need, we need now to, to implement it, to, to know that. The second thing I'd like to say is that you cannot see the DMA in, in isolation. The DMA is part of more general move in Europe, so within our member states and outside of Europe. I mean, which is exactly the same focus as we have, and sometimes different means. I, I talked about the Brits. The U.S. suddenly tries to capture the same things through their traditional antitrust tools. A number of other countries are thinking about other things. And I think that for as long as we have the same analysis and the same goals, this diversity is more an asset than a program. Because let me take the, uh, the British system and our system. Take a given practice. In some cases, the Brits will not have to go through these long investigations because it's outright prohibited. We will prohibit it. And either the firms will change their behavior across the board worldwide, or at the very least, other jurisdictions will be able to base themselves on no prohibition in order to help speeding up their case. And in other cases, we will find practices that do not fit into the DMA or the anti-circumvention mechanism. We would have to go for, for Article 102, and maybe the British instruments, the DMU, will be, will be more effective and quicker than us, and that will help us in a, you know, one or two enforcement. So I think for as long as we have a commonality of goals, of analysis, and we cooperate, 
this diversity is, will be an asset for effective enforcement worldwide. So not much I would change if I had the magic stick because it's too early to know. Thank you. And I think, you know, obviously we will all be continuing to, to watch closely how, how that develops, but the insights on it are very interesting. You know, I do want to go back into that more traditional competition sphere, thinking about the most significant merger cases and dominance cases we've seen in the last few years. And often those are cases that take place on the global stage where the EC is cooperating with enforcers in the US, the UK and elsewhere. Um, and, and picking up maybe on the, the U.S. in particular, where I'm sitting, you know, there have been a number of high profile merger cases in recent, recent years where the EC reached a different outcome than the DOJ or the FTC. We had uh, Aon Willis, we had Cargo Tech Kono Cranes. Uh, and after a very long period, certainly most of my career, where when you thought about international antitrust enforcement, all of the focus really seemed to be on ensuring consistency of outcome. Uh, it has felt to me like we've seen this real uptick in divergence in the last few years. With a view to that, have you seen changes in the way that cooperation with the U.S. agencies have evolved during the Trump and Biden administrations? Or how is that cooperation working right now? I will start with the end. It's working very well. I think we have an extent of cooperation, at least I have not seen in the past. We have always had, I mean, for a very long time, a very good cooperation with U.S. agencies. I have to say, I may make that joke, for a long time, we were cooperating with one agency and with the others. And we, we felt sometimes like, you know, the guest that has to reconcile the couple. And that's not the case with this administration. They are aligned. They work together. They don't need a third party to, be, to build bridges. It has not always been the case. And it's, it's, it's frankly, it's nicer for, for foreigners when you don't. To, but what you are dragged into internal disputes. So one, we cooperate probably more and better than ever. And two, this cooperation is very consistent and joined up between DOJ and FTC. So I think this is extremely positive. Now, cooperation is important. And of course, one of the goals, well, the first goal in cooperation is to be more effective in enforcement. But the second goal in cooperation is, of course, to minimize the differences in outcome notably in measures when it goes to remedies, because of course that's no good for business. I mean, the worst of all situations is when we have the same analysis, but you have remedy one in Europe and remedy two in the US, because that may kill the deal. Of course, this is perfectly legitimate when the markets are different or have different structures. So I'm talking here, just to be clear, only about single issues on a single world market. This is where in principle two authorities should should have the same analysis and ideally the same remedies. When the market structures are different, there is absolutely no reason why we should have the same analysis, same remedies. So with this in mind, if you look historically, I think we've always been quite good at converging and we always have had our divergences, which are of several different natures. Sometimes we simply don't agree, but that's quite rare. I cannot remember, and I think the late last case in which that happens is probably Boeing McDonald Douglas. So it's quite a bit ago. Um, but I cannot remember a, a case except this one, maybe GE on a well as well, in which there was a profound difference of analysis about the competitive theory of law. So that means it's basically 20 years it has not happened. Now, what may happen is we are aligned on the analysis of, of the competitive theory of harm. 
but we disagree on the remedy. That's very rare, but that happens. And what happens as well is we do agree on everything, but the idiosyncrasies of all, of all legal systems lead to different outcomes without really us willing to have a different outcome. It's because you have to go to a judge, we take an initiative decision, and we cannot manage to align the time spans. But we try to avoid that to, to all the extent possible. So you mentioned, for example, Antoine Willis, that, which is true. I mean, it's a fact. We were not completely aligned that. But, you know, on that very same year, we had another global phase two in Dunfoss Eton Hydraulics, where we were absolutely perfectly aligned uh, with the DOJ on the competitive analysis and on the remedy package. Same for Cargotech, which you mentioned as well. Although Cargotech is a bit more subtle, I have to say, which first of all, to the best of my recollection, there was never a decision in the US uh, on Cargotech. So what would have happened should a judge had to pronounce is a mystery for everybody. But certainly we have the same competitive analysis. We may have had a divergence on the remedy. We certainly had a divergence on the remedy with the CMA at least if not in, with, with the U.S. But again, at that same year, you could have found a lot more examples in which it worked very well. NVIDIA Arm, not exactly a very small case. Parker Megat, Stellanese DuPont, Ali Group Worldbid, and I will stop here because I, I have a long list for you. And yet, alignment is not an end in itself. But of course, we're trying to achieve it, first, because it's more effective in terms of enforcement. And second, because it's more effective for the business. Which led me to a last consideration, which is, I invite business, whenever they do not do it, to grant waivers. Because for me, not granting waivers, in particular in a merger case, is almost invariably a lose-lose situation. Because what we need to know about the case on the other side, we ultimately always know. Because it's, it's, it almost never happens that it is confidential or that we do not get our hands of it, on it. Not least by simply requesting the parties to transmit everything they have transmitted to the other authority, which is perfectly in our powers and that, that we do occasionally. So, the chances that you can conceal something is very low, but your best interest is that we reach the same analysis. If we do not have exactly the same set of information, we need to reach slightly different analysis for very bad reasons. And that, that is invariably bad for the, for the parties because then that translates into different remedies and that may jeopardize it. So I, I never saw exactly what was the advantage in not granting a waiver. And I think, conversely, you can see a, a lot of, of, of advantages in doing so. Olivier, thank you very much. Very interesting. Now, moving to an area which I know is, has always been of interest to you is cartel enforcement. Right? You were deputy head of unit director for cartels and would like to focus on also leniency. And I, it brings me back to a discussion I think we had a long time ago as the, the EU Commission was drafting its uh, da uh, damage directive. I had that with you, I did the, the smiter. And is the focus on private enforcement uh, is right, but the concern which I expressed at the time, others, you know, obviously what is going to be the impact on, on leniency? Leniency was and has always been or was at the time 
a very powerful tool to detect cartels. And the question is, you know, as you try to promote private enforcement, what is the impact on public enforcement? And I understand that you will respond to that, that there might have been a, a reduction uh, in, in terms of uh, leniency applications. It's a question for your confirmation. And if it is the case, is it due to the fact that maybe the risk that companies are facing with private enforcement these days and the tools which are in place to favor private enforcement have inevitably a, an impact on the incentive to cooperate and apply for leniency. What would you think of that? I think I would disagree with this and I will explain why. But you said it. I mean, when I left DG competition in 2010, I was director for cartels. We had plenty of leniencies applications in the drawers. And yet, one of the last decisions I took before leaving was to carve out a third of the staffing of the cartel directorate to do something else than leniencies, ex officios, uh, IT searches, what have you. I mean, everything that leads you to generate cases outside of leniency. Unfortunately, as soon as I had left, this decision was reversed because, I mean, you have this goose that was laying golden eggs all the time. And my successor didn't see why he should not make use of it, I suppose. So the, the next 10 years were years of processing leniencies, very successfully, lots of cases, big, big fines, happy commissioners, very good. And at some point, the goose seemed to be a bit more tired, not only in Europe, actually everywhere, including in countries for which there had, had been no change in the conditions for private enforcement. This, I think this is what is striking, is that it's happened so that in Europe, the trend down in leniency was at the same time as, as uh, the directive on private enforcement was taking place. But in the US, you had the trend down as well while they had detriment. So the truth is, and in other jurisdictions, they have no private enforcement and they, were, they had the trend, trend down as well. So, the thing is, it's, it's very difficult. I had looked at it because, of course, I mean, as an enforcer, I want to know how I can remedy this. And the truth is, it's extremely difficult to find any correlation. Where you find the correlation, big time, is between the chances to be detected while shutting up and the incentive to file a leniency application. There, there is a correlation. If firms which are engaging to cartels believe they have zero chances to be detected, you have zero chances that they will file a leniency application. Or actually, the few you will find are what I would describe as uh, offensive leniency applications, sometimes by firms that have kick-started the cartel, attracted others into the cartel before reporting everybody and escaping immune, which is a disgusting strategy, but it's a strategy, and it can be quite effective. But otherwise, nobody in its right mind would do that. So... What has happened is when I came back, the first thing I did was to appoint Maria Jaspers, whom I knew from my time as a director for Castel, and I knew she was knowing what she was doing. We had long discussions with Lindsay McCallum and her about what should be done. I appointed her, and she had a clear mission brief, which is rebuild an ex-official pipeline, shake the tree. It was a bit delayed by, by the COVID, Obviously, but it worked quite well, you know, in, in 22, still yeah. with this terrible private damages, we had twice as many applications yeah. in, as in 21. 
And in 21, we had had three times as many applications as in 2020. So there is a very clear upward trend from the moment we signaled that we were serious on exhibition. And for me, that has a much bigger role than private matches. I was in a conference the other day and uh, one of the lawyers told me you should consider immunizing the immunity applicant against private damages. That's really not a good idea, in my view, because what we see increasingly is that it's very difficult, sometimes impossible, to make a case with only one applicant. And if you immunize the first one against private damages, because of the way private damages are being done, that means you have to share what you would have had to pay among the other participants in the garden. So you decrease the incentive for number two and three to come and help you secure your case. And you may end up in the very uncomfortable situation where you have an immunity applicant and you cannot make a case, which is really the worst possible outcome from my, from my perspective. So for the time being, our focus is really on stepping up our ex-official capacity, cooperating a lot more with other jurisdictions as you have seen recently. An example, something we had not seen for a long time, which is joint downgrade, well, joint simultaneous downgrade in, in, in many jurisdictions, including the US, because we had coordinated on a lead that had originated in Europe from our ex officio efforts. So that I think is the way forward. We still have quite a way to go. It is long. It is resource intensive. It is uh, a lot more difficult than simply processing a leniency, of course. But I, I'm convinced this is the right way to, to go. If it's not enough, we may think about how we can better the damages directive, but that's not really high on my agenda. Thank you, Olivier. I think we could debate for hours on that. And as you said, we disagree. I think we disagree that at the time we probably still disagree to a certain extent these days. You know, my experience come from having advice companies who had decided to cooperate before this pickup of private enforcement and telling me, well, had I known, you know, I might not have cooperated at least to the same extent with the same intensity, you know, but so, but. Let's move on. Well, maybe the lesson they could draw is that they should stop catalyzing. Ah, yeah, absolutely. That, that I hopefully they've understood by now. They would, they, they would even cut on the lawyer's feet. I, I won't comment on this one, right? <laughs> okay, uh, Chen, let's move on to Article 22, the merger control. Yeah, exactly. Let's say we maybe move from controversy to controversy. I think, uh, Olivier, I mean, obviously, another aspect of enforcement that has changed during your tenure uh, as Director General is how Article 22 referrals are approached. And we're now years out from the Illumina Grail referral in March 2021 uh, and the updated approach to Article 22 policy that facilitates review of uh, certain transactions that aren't reportable in any member state. And I think we've seen that, you know, in absolute terms, the number of non-notifiable deals that are referred up has been small. Um, you know, but sitting here in, in private practice, I can tell you that 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 recalibrated approach has caused a lot of consternation for companies in terms of process and timing issues um, because it can really increase legal uncertainty uh, in, in certain cases. And I know you've, you've heard um, these concerns raised, I'm sure. And, and I'm curious, you know, how you um, how you think about that and that balance between seeing those cases that are referred under the new approach versus, you know, the uncertainty that that creates for businesses. 
Yeah, I have had this question two years ago in Florida. And um, when I asked the crowd of lawyers, mostly, so uncertainty in Europe. So how many of you are advising on mergers in the US? So let's be serious. First of all, there was never a bright line. This recalibrated the process. We call it, we call it like this because it's not a reinterpretation. The merger reg has always been meaning the same thing. And actually, and I think that's one of the reasons why we want the case in the general court. The, the commission has always been consistent in its interpretation. So the commission has always said, unwritten in 2004, in 2016, that the merger regulation allowed member states to refer cases below any threshold. Simply, we were recommended them not to do it. And we, we, we were recommended not to do it because the balance of advantages and the disadvantages was strongly in our view in favor of not doing it. The reason for that is that it relates to what I said at the very beginning of this conversation was less of an issue. So in other words, it was extremely exceptional that you find a case that is below any possible threshold and yet can be important and very detrimental to competition, even on a large scale, even worldwide, if you think of it in that way. So the, the case of a zero turnover target and the huge impact on competition was so remote that we thought it was not worth disturbing the quiet and peaceful legal certainty of the market. This has drastically changed. So today it is not in big numbers, as you said, but I mean, three cases in three years is what we're talking about. And by the way, a number of other cases were referred to us under Article 22 without having to revert to this new recommendation because they were just notifiable in one member state. And I failed to see exactly what is the difference of, in legal uncertainty between the one and the other, frankly. In particular, as with the type of matrix that is used in these member states to capture a case. It's quite difficult to know in advance whether you will fall under the national major regime or not. So my view is that the uncertainty has always been there for that reason, but also because it was a recommendation. Any member states at any point in time could have said, well, thank you for your recommendation commission, but this one case is a problem for me. I refer it to you. And that it's real uncertainty because you have a recommendation of the commission. So as a lawyer, you expect member states to implement it. If you have a that says, no, in this case, I'm sorry, I don't think this is the right thing to do. You're really caught by surprise. Today, nobody's caught by surprise. It's fairly clear, frankly, what is problematic and what isn't problematic. In any case, in the field in which two fields, in which it's more likely to happen than others, that is the medical sector, medicines, vaccines, on the one hand, and the digital on the other. In digital, with the obligation of Article 14 of the DMA, funds have to ask themselves the question anyway, I would say. So I would dispute that it creates a major uncertainty. And I would even say that if you compare to the US and to the UK and to most of the jurisdictions, even with this new recommendation, the EU is still kind of legal certainty heaven for lawyers. So don't be too greedy. It was the most economical way for business to cope with that situation in which you have cases, yes, in small number, but when they exist, they can be hugely detrimental, which defeats any possible quantitative threshold. 
and you have to handpick them. That has always been the case in the U.S., forever. You seem to live very well with it. And you seem also to live with the U.S. authorities not providing you with any decision, and even explicitly setting that uh, not only they don't provide you with a decision, but they may decide otherwise at any point in time in the future. So, frankly, I think you still have a very good deal in the EU. And this for firms, you know, the, what was the counterfactual? That we force firms to report every transaction? All firms? That's insane. We don't want this. We don't want to put that burden on, on firms. So when they're doing their due diligence, it's pretty clear whether you are in the 99% of cases in which you're in the safe zone or in the 1% of cases in which you need to have a look, or in the 0.001% of the cases in which you better go to the authority and see whether uh, they will try to, to take it because they need to anticipate that. I think that in the end of the day, the most economical way of doing it for everybody. You know, I think you're, you're certainly right that in the US over the last year, we've had a couple of uh, cases come up where we you know, now advise clients that no deal is ever safe, even 10 years down the line. So... Um, you know, appreciate that in the Article 22 context, at least we know within a relatively short period whether that's being being referred up or not. But maybe let's transition to something that is entirely new, the foreign subsidies regulation. So, yeah, we're coming to the end of this podcast, but we have one last question for you, uh, Olivier, on FSR. I mean, companies, we know that are working hard to prepare filings when required or even, you know, to prepare themselves or possible investigations at the moment. But the big question is, how is the Commission, DGCOM, going to deal with it? And, you know, we know that there is this question of staffing and, and so on. So can you give us an update on where you are in terms of organizing the FSR review and, and, and we're sure, you know, here yeah, the, the community that it will work uh, smoothly uh, despite this staffing issue? Well, the staffing issue is now is no mystery. There was an article in political. The situation is quite clear. The, the co-legislators, so the member states and the parliament, when they have decided on the FSR, they have voted together with it what we call a financial fish, which is the fish that forces which are the means that will be necessary, the additional means that will be necessary to implement that regulation. And the financial fish was forcing 145 new Case handlers. How much, how many did, have we received? Zero. Why? Because there is a form of hypocrisy in that the very same budgetary authority that tells you you need 145 new staff to do the FSR or 85 to do the DMA, of which I received 90. They tell you, yes, but you, Commission, should reduce your staffing by 5% over, over the next seven years because we have a seven years budgetary programmation. Another way of saying that is that these posts do not exist and they cannot possibly exist, except if you take them elsewhere in the commission. This game is ongoing for 20 years and it was very productive in the beginning because there was fat elsewhere in the commission. And actually DigiCon grew thanks to this because we had new tasks, existing tasks were growing and we got transfers from elsewhere. But in all fairness, there is not much fat anywhere after 20 years of history. So it's increasingly difficult to find whether you get staff in order to finance the new tasks. And this is why, well, there is simply no new, new staff anymore. There are ways to fix this. I have suggested to all the ambassadors who are negotiating 
now the review of the financial perspective, that maybe it could be an idea, whatever the trajectory they want to draw for seven years, to say that new tasks for which the same authority has decided that you need new staffing should be put outside of this trajectory and that this new staffing should, should actually exist on top. That's just a very easy way to solve that, to keep the general discipline while financing the new task. But if it happens, it will only happen once the financial perspective has been reviewed at the end of the year, and it will then take time again. So it's not short-term. It's not a short-term solution. So short-term, we have to do with our internal efficiencies. So what do I do? I have a network. Right, we are a matrix organization. We used to work under the 50% of normal workload when need be. Once again, this is what we will do. This is what we've been doing for the DMA, by the way. The DMA is no way I could have coped with what I was given. So I took a very bold decision. I took one of the antitrust unit, the unit of Thomas Kramner, outside of the antitrust in digital directorate to do DMA. But the consequence is that we will do less antitrust in, in digital because you cannot have your cake and eat it. But here it's the same. I have pre-identified a number of people in mergers in state aid to deal with the uh, FSR cases, but it's very, very suboptimal. That means that a number of cases will simply not be investigated because we will have to prioritize. But that's the way it is. And I probably, if, the continue, if it continues like this, will have again to take all decisions and decide that there are other things that actually are quite useful, but that we will stop doing or do less because we will need to transfer people to, to do a foreign subsidy check. That's the imperfect world in, in which we live. There's not much the commission can do about it short term. It's mainly in the hands of the parliament and the council. Parliament is quite positive, but the member states are by, almost by nature greedy. And, and they're, they're not too, too keen on, on allowing more stuff, even on key new powers that they think are essential, which is absolutely clear for the foreign engineering regulation. Uh, very good, uh, Origi. Thank you for you know, being transparent and outspoken uh, about the issue that you're facing in, uh, in enforcing the FSR. That's another of your quality, yes, transparency, which is very much appreciated. I guess that, you know, you would be helped, uh, we discussed that, by the fact that, you know, in the FSR regime, you don't have to take a decision and write up a decision. I guess that most of the cases, the parties will have to do the work, the filing, but, you, you know, you may not, you may just let uh, the, the, is that the two weeks or 15 days deadline elapse uh, without decision. I guess that's the way. Well, if you take a decision, actually, it's a decision to go into second phase. So you're right. So most of the time, you simply have to read the notification, maybe send a question, maybe I'll talk to the lawyers. If, if you don't have all the information you need, and then you decide whether you need to go further or whether it's right. You have also a number of cases that are also notified under the merger right. So I was going to say, yeah, you, you, you will have there some synergies with the merger control review and the case team will do the work. I mean... Uh, yeah, but it's not like as them. if the colleagues in the merger network are uh, unemployed, you know? No. I understand. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I don't know how ex ex excited they are about doing the FSR review, but that's... I mean, 
you know, we have, a, I think we have a rate of intervention that is above what we used to have in previous years. If I take only last year, we prohibited two mergers, but four were abandoned in the last months of phase two. I cannot reveal where they would have headed to, but you can guess. I mean, there is a lot. For a very, very long time, for numerous months over the last two years, we have had eight or more phase two ongoing at the same moment. Believe me, people in the Merger Network are busy. Understood, Olivier. So we've come to the end of this podcast, and I really want to thank you on, on behalf of Jen and on behalf of all. As I said at the outset over the last three years, you you have managed and DigiCom in most cases, I think, to find the right balance. I can only wish you to continue doing that because it's a day-to-day challenge, right? Not every case is the same. As you said, you know, probably, you know, antitrust is more challenging than it has ever been ever with innovation and so on and find the right balance uh, and avoid regulatory mistakes is is even more of a challenge these days than it it has been over the last 30 years or so that we have been around, right? So uh, good luck with that and uh, many thanks again for being with us. And uh, you know, I'm sure we'll we'll see each other uh, very soon. Thank you, Olivier. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Laurent. Thank you.